Welcome to Australian Hunger, I am your host Ben. Got an interview with Plowshare, a really cool band from Canberra, kind of combining certain aspects of dissonant music like noise with a kind of more general extreme metal approach. I think it'd be a little bit of a mistake to pin it down to any one particular genre. But I think they're one of these kind of bands that Australia produces and, you know, I think obviously I'm a little bit biased living here and having covered particularly the music from this particular scene for a while is I think Australia produces these kind of really cool bands. Like Australia's not that great at producing standard genre bands like black metal, death metal, thrash metal, although we do have a few, but a lot of our best bands tend to not do a specific genre. They sort of have a tendency to combine styles in really, really interesting ways. And I think there's sort of uh, Plowshares participating in a broader Australian tradition of kind of these dissonant, extreme metal bands. Really, really cool stuff. But before we get to that, a couple of things I want to discuss. First up, um, Nagal from <laughs> Behemoth was uh, doing an interview and he mentioned Hitler. I'm not going to go into any further details than that. But even if you are talking about Hitler in the most innocent of circumstances, don't talk about Hitler unless you're a World War II historian. It's, it's like no good can comfort. No good can comfort. So Nagal. Anyway, but the thing I wanted to go into a little bit of depth in was... A story regarding a different interview where someone else said something stupid. Um, this was a Treyu singer, Alex Vakatas. Alex Vakatsis. Um, and he said that Atreyu invented metalcore. Something which is basically not true and kind of hard to pin down because a. So let's let's start off why it's not true is because they started in 1998 and you've got bands that have been doing stuff which either would be and you basically got the pioneers of the bands operating before that in the mid 90s so that's not true and also like to say you invented metalcore in a style which is really something which evolved quite organically there was no kind of cutoff point which say like yep that's death metal or like that's black metal uh, metalcore is a bit uh, metalcore is a bit kind of more complicated than that because you have a lot of different hardcore bands taking influences from metal and slowly developing stuff which we will ultimately call metalcore i mean there's no real cutoff point because it was sort of more an incorporation of those two styles rather than so this style emerging kind of more concretely um but it kind of you know it's not it's not really that really an interesting point to say that guy's wrong but what is more interesting is a point that i heard on the most recent episode of basogam a really cool podcast about metal bands which uh, as they would term it bullshit old guy metal and they were talking a little bit in their latest episode about slayer's influence so in the history of death metal, you've got the really important bands like Possessed and Death. So Possessed is basically the first band to really do something which you could say, that's death metal. You know, that's definitely death metal. Death, I think, is the first band to really do it justice. Possessed is good, but I think Death's first album, Scream Bloody Gore, is kind of like the definitive statement on death metal. Like, you've got that, and then everything else can come after it. But, like, when you're talking about who's more important in death metal, it's not necessarily possessed. Even if you're going you're gonna to definitely say they're the first death metal band, they're the first proper death metal band, they're the first band who would sketch out and put into a, a form which is different... Sh- 
a form which is different than thrash metal even though it's on a spectrum like you've got to kind of put the cutoff point and I think it's a little drawn a little bit more clearly in this instance but like one thing that I've been aware of and the guys, guys uh, John Serber and Damien Mars to talk about in the episode is that even though you've got an important band like Possessed who really put the stamp this is death metal some of the more influential bands are not necessarily playing death metal so you've got a band like a Slayer, incredibly important band in metal generally, but really important in death metal because I think I think what really illustrates this point is a band like Cannibal Corpse. So you watch their documentary on the first 25 years, I think it's Centuries of Torment, the first 25 years, and they start off those early shows, early the early videos of their live shows, and they're basically a Slayer band. They're a little bit more extreme, pushing the boundaries a little bit more than Slayer did. Because even though Slayer were intense, they were kind of... They feel contained within Thrash. Even though they're really going up against the edge of the more extreme boundaries of Thrash, they are definitely a Thrash band. But like that, that, that... The music that they played has influence far beyond just thrash, and the fact that they're kind of a, uh, the fact that they released such a key record in Rain and Blood, as well as their early stuff. I think Rain and Blood is really the record. Means that they can have an influence on a genre which you probably wouldn't put them in really kind of weird thing to think about it because I think uh, I'm definitely guilty of this we say we, we tend to think of genres as like beginning at one point here's the here's the pioneers of the style alright that's good and of course you've got the influences but they're not as important and that's just not I don't think that's the case that, that's kind of a simple way of thinking it may be that those pioneers put their flag in and they've got markers which everyone will recognise but it also may be that in the entirety of a style, a band which was close to it but was more popular can have a much wider influence and can, and can, and can therefore be considered almost more important in the formation of that genre. Really, really interesting stuff. I know I'm talking a little bit about genre. I talked about it last week. But I'm kind of fascinated about these things because genre is this nice word that kind of encapsulate, encapsulates a style and I think if without that it's it's really difficult to talk about music in a lot of ways I, at least I find it quite difficult because then you're talking about bands <laughs> if you're talking about metal bands you've got a thousand and that's just the most important ones and then you've got a thousand other ones and they're still they're pretty good and they're the ones you should pay attention to if you can't group them besides country and country can be incredibly deceiving because they're all different bands so while country is definitely important and you have definitely um definite stylistic stylistic differences which are specific to countries it just doesn't quite do it in enabling you to really talk about these various different bands, some of which sound like, some of which don't. Those differences and similarities are really important. So, fascinating way. And I, something I already knew in the fact that I'd seen that Cannibal Corpse documentary and it sort of incorporated, but something which I hadn't quite thought about and hadn't quite, you know, understood in a kind of active way. Really, really cool stuff. So, but... Basogam, check that podcast out. It's, it's discussing metal, I think, in the way it really deserves to be discussed in this kind of slightly mocking but loving tone. And I, I think that's how, especially, I definitely feel that way about these kind of bands which were never really cool. 
even if they were did have some success, they were never really cool. Just because of the nature of the music and how it sort of fits into a broader popular culture. But anyway, on to the interview. Um, I talked to I talked to Plowshare. Their latest album, In Awful Salvation, really awesome title. Like <laughs> one of the best titles I've heard in a long time. And yeah, I talked to them. Canberra band. Really, really interesting perspective being from a kind of isolated, you know, a pocket of a particular country, which is sort of separate from the rest. And that, that separation and the nature of the place being our, you know, the home of our government and therefore kind of odd, naturally, all those homes of government cities are odd by their very nature. Really interesting perspective. And I, I really liked their the way that some of the earlier questions I asked about how they produced the record really sort of played out. They kept bringing it up and relating some of my later questions back to that. That was really, uh, I really appreciated the way they answered some of those questions because it sort of enables the interview to flow really well together. The track that plays during the middle of the interview is The Urinary Chalice Held Aloft and the track at the end is Salvific Putridity Bestowed. So without further ado, Plowshare. Now, before we get to any of the kind of real questions, just introduce yourselves and talk a little bit about what you do in the band. Uh, I'm David. I play bass in the band. I do some of the vocals. I'm Rowan. I play guitar. I'm Max. I do the vocals and play guitar as well. Our drummer, Elliot, isn't here either. So let's get back to the real beginning. When did the band start? I was started in 2015, towards the end of the year. So how do you guys get together? Um, I think we'd all known each other for a long time. Um, probably close to 15 years between all of us. We'd played music together before, and we'd all sort of known each other and seen each other at shows for a long time um, before deciding we wanted to start try and work on something together. You guys started to work on something. How did you kind of develop the sound of the band? Uh, I think we we initially got together just to uh, try and make a band that sounded heavy, but also dissonant. And we we had spent some time playing guitar previously um, for for fun, and I think it got it got a little bit more fun, and so we, <laughs> and so we kept going with it, and. Um, where we've sort of gone has sort of changed a little bit, but in its origins, it felt really organic. What kind of sounds, bands that influenced, uh, like, the direction you guys have gone in? Um, so I, I don't think at any point do we have a kind of concrete sense of any kind of, I guess, like, causal relationship to other bands that we were trying to follow. Um, and like Rowan said, I think when we sort of started the band, our goal was mainly to try and write heavy music that was, uh, I suppose, with a particular sort of emphasis on on dynamics and also be like an emphasis on sort of dissonance um, and the kind of cultivation of, I guess, like a sort of unsettling atmosphere. So I suppose with, with that given, there's a kind of affinity between our sound, and I know we're all, we're all sort of big fans of a number of other Australian bands, like I guess Grave Upheaval, Spire, Impetuous Ritual, Portal, that sort of thing. Um, but I don't think it's ever been something more concrete than that of a just kind of shared sort of musical culture. 
Mm, that's really interesting. Why is it that dissonance has some, been something that's attracted all of you guys? That's a good question. Um, I think there's a, a, a mode of expression that's possible through kind of consonant and clashing kind of sounds, I, I suppose. But I, I'm really sort of thinking about this for the first time because it's always kind of felt like something to go to straight away. Mm. Um, it's always kind of felt right to, to, to play something that is as um, explosive or intensive a sound as you can kind of achieve. That's always been a really cool thing to do and doing it with people uh, with the same motivations and intensity makes it even sicker. Yeah. I mean, I think we've all probably been kind of, well, I know I can speak for myself with the first time I got into playing electric guitar, I was always fascinated with the relationship between sort of electric guitar and an amplifier in terms of things that are generally considered, I guess, non-musical that people might mm. sort of overlook like, things like feedback and um, kind of the sounds you get when you play two notes a semitone apart in a heavily distorted amplifier. Those, those things have always kind of attracted me even well before I was aware of any of the kind of um, musical styles that we maybe kind of participate in now or attempt to participate in. So the, like, like Rowan said, I feel like that's kind of a, um, a, natural. a, a natural thing yeah, to kind yeah. of, I don't know, I've always had an attraction to it. And I think that's something that we all share as a group. Definitely. Plowshare, that's a really interesting name for a band. Um, I might want to yeah. kind of explore that when we talk about themes of the album later. But where, where does the name Plowshare come from for you guys? Sure. Um, well, it, can't, it's, it came after a long and pained period that I'm sure every band goes through when you kind of have to make a decision um, about what you're doing. Um, and after a lot of conversations, the... The list was long, as I suppose it is for <laughs> for, for most bands, but came across the name Plowshare. It was a, a tentative title for a book of Frederick Nietzsche's that actually ended up being called Dawn. Um, and I kind of, I, I, I like the book, um, and I thought there was something in, in the kind of uh, connotations of the word Plowshare, and I explained to Max and Dave and Elliot my sort of thinking on the matter and we all sort of came to appreciate that there was something in the way that a kind of plowshare both as a kind of very crude I suppose mechanical object that turns the earth but also um, brings about something radically different um, in its wake was cool enough to kind of vibe with but you know beyond beyond something like that it really worked as uh, as a fix or something so we could kind of bond and keep 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 the music going i think mm. um but yeah that, I, i'd say that i mean that's the direct lineage of it um and i suppose it has it also has a kind of resonance with other things we do now as well it carries itself in a way that is, is kind of cool um and can be read across in a number of different fashions and, and still be kind of rewarding without forcing a, a a kind of uh, without forcing too much on you as 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 someone encountering the name, um, there are a lot of words. <laughs> We're kind of bombarded, I suppose, with music in a way. Um, but uh, having a name that that meant we could keep going and doing what we we're doing was was the principal reason, I suppose. Mm, that's definitely true. There's lots of different meanings. I uh, definitely when it when it first came to my head, I definitely took a different meaning. 
Let's talk a little bit about the music. You released your demo Literature of Piss last year. What stage did you start working on this album? So I think we started working on Literature of Piss in 2015, late 2015. Um, I guess that was that was pretty early into when we sort of first started sort of crystallising, I guess, what we were trying to do as a band. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't a long time between sort of writing those songs and recording them. It seems like a long time ago now, I guess, but but I think that that was recorded over a couple of months. Um, it was all, all done ourselves. Elliot, the, the drummer, recorded all of that. And, um, yeah, I guess we just got it out there after that and were surprised by sort of the, the positive reaction we got to that initially. Yeah. yeah, I think we probably started writing in late 2015 when we started working together. And if I remember correctly, it was probably recorded by late 2016. So there was, I mean, which, which is to say that I think that there was a relatively fast turnaround between us starting to work on it and finishing working on it. Um, and I think by the time the songs were written for that, we'd already started work on writing the record in Awful, which then sort of consumed most of last year for all of us. I, just, I didn't realise you guys had sort of self-recorded and mixed that. That's interesting. I'll have to add that question later on. Um between you guys and the band, the four of you, is, do you have a way that you write music that you work towards sort of a concrete song? Um, so I, I suppose the short answer is no, we don't. Um, it, it all tends to be quite, it, it's quite a contingent process, I suppose. I think between all of it, there's a, it's, the songwriting process is very collaborative. I mean, it's very hard, I think, for us to look, to look at any of the songs we've written, um, you, like you can't sort of disaggregate anybody's roles in any of those songwriting in any of that songwriting because it's been such a collective process. I guess we all we all write bits and pieces of material, whether that's riffs or entire sections of songs or anything like that. But beyond that, I mean, most of the work is sort of done after that in you know either just bedrooms together or rehearsal or rehearsal rooms where we tend to piece everything together, rework material, and arrange songs. So. There's never been a kind of coherent process other than a kind of mixture of writing bits and pieces on our own and then putting it all into place as a group. Mm, uh, that sort of works really nicely into my second question. For, for you guys, um, do you have a separate writing process? Like when you're trying to generate ideas, focus ideas, do you have a process which you use or like any environments that you prefer, things that you like to... I don't know, harness your creativity in that way. Taking it for a long time and, and being interested in pursuing kind of music, you begin to notice a kind of um, a consistency and to borrow a, a musical metaphor to kind of describe it in a weird way, it kind of has a rhythm to it. And so there are periods of productivity for me, at least, um, distilling kind of like what I can do to intervene and create those conditions so I'm more productive with my writing. It's kind of hard to know. Um, I just kind of relish when I've got a lot, a lot of energy and I can, the ideas kind of come quicker. I, I can only speak for myself really, but I, I've strained for, for a long time uh, in bouts that have been quite dry to kind of put something together. And then, you know, you can put a guitar down for, for a week and pick it up again and something will just come very, very quickly. And it's an idea worth pursuing. Uh, I think one of the things that I try and do is, and I've tried to cultivate out of being in a band and, considered a bit more as an individual too is knowing when an idea is good to pursue and knowing when an idea kind of isn't 
going to go and, and there are so many things that can influence that um but having a kind of honesty about what's gonna what's gonna have some legs is is gonna do you well and it's really going to come over time at least that's been my experience but yeah yeah or developing electronics or doing noise stuff i often find that like a very a very difficult kind of process and something something that it, it's funny like sort of talking about like an answer to this question in a way like there's sort of a methodical way to, to do this i kind of spend a lot of my time trying to work out exactly what that is individually mm. for me yeah you it know? just happens like as in like if i if i knew what the answer to that question yeah. was i feel like i'd be like a much happier guy you know yeah. like but, but it's <laughs> yeah. um like it's i don't know like i know i know it's like dave touched wave, on this, yeah well D- dave touched on this before about like writing collaboratively and stuff i, I definitely see like sort of stages to the way that we write music as a group and and for me there's a stage where I'm at home kind of struggling with ideas individually and then there's a stage where we come together as the four of us where it kind of it becomes this cohesive thing between the other members of the group and to me that the kind of sound in the band is is very much that that second stage where it sort of glues together with other people's ideas and and as Dave sort of alluded to I don't think that um it's to me it's a strictly collaborative kind of process the way that we write music in this in this band i mean the only thing i can think of that's probably a, a more individual thing up until maybe in awful was some of the electronics was definitely something that i tried to do very late at night by myself <laughs> you know that's that that sort of i felt that that was productive that was productive for me to produce that kind of music in a very isolated and, and individual kind of environment but um the rest of it not not so much yeah. I mean, like, I fucking wish I knew how to create a set of conditions yeah. that would help me write music. <laughs> um, but I think in, t- in terms of a kind of practical, or the, the, in terms of the sort of practice of songwriting, I re- I just try and suck at my guitar a couple of times a week, or, you know, every, <laughs> every couple of days. You know, I think I think this is somebody something that everyone sort of touched on, is that a big part of songwriting, for us at least, is a very kind of ugly process. Like, you know, I try and play every couple of days and it's it's definitely not always a successful process in terms of songwriting um, or in terms of riff writing or anything even more basic than that. But I think the only thing I've kind of found that works is just bashing away as often as possible mm. until something mm. comes out. Yeah. And I think that we, we've tended to find that as a band as well, that that doesn't only go for when we're writing alone, but when we get together as a, you know, when the four of us get together in the rehearsal room, you know, sometimes we can finish a couple of songs in a night and sometimes, you know, we'll kind of manage to get down a couple of riffs in a row and that's all that happens. I think the only thing that we've really found that works is just steady work at it. Mm. Mm. It's interesting too because, I mean, it's also like when I think about how I would approach the guitar as an instrument, there is there is an amount of time that's dedicated to like kind of boring rudiments as well. Like mm. there's a kind of desire to skill up in a way that requires a very repetitious mode of engagement with the instrument that that's just about skilling up and then you know i think maybe what everyone's speaking about is that but perhaps what you're alluding to as well ben is is that that little extra more where you know speaking practically you sit down for 45 minutes and you run through some scales and you know you work on your work on your right hand or something and then you know other times you'll pick up a tire and just noodle on the couch and something will happen and there's that kind of contingency built into it, but it also happens around a structure you impose. If, if you know, if you if your if your intention is to become a better musician or to become a better player or to contribute to 
the band's dynamic or progression in a way that you know requires some some focus and attention then that's also a part of interacting with the instrument too it's not it's not all just uh, <laughs> uh coming up with sick ideas unfortunately <laughs> i'd be mad but yeah. so you mentioned earlier that elliot did the first album literature piece and i think it's in the notes on bandcamp that max and elliot did the recording and mixing for uh in awful uh, what was that process like do you did max elliot do you have uh, i know elliot's not there but do, do you guys have previous experience in doing um that kind of sound work elliot elliot's got a lot of experience i think that there's been a huge number of records that come out of the canberra sort of general heavy music scene not even just heavy music actually the, the music scene in canberra that elliot's recording he's probably got yeah he's got a lot of experience in that i came into recording in awful with next to no experience other than sort of working on electronics and electronic music on my computer in my own time um so i guess with with in awful the way that i i sort of approached that was that um i mean it, not to get sort of bogged down the technical side of it too much, I guess, because that's nobody wants to hear that. But but I mean, it's um, it's, oh yeah, we do. <laughs> um, it's we recorded all the guitars direct, so all the guitars and bass were direct into my computer um, using using amp simulations and stuff like that. Which that that tech's gotten really good, especially in the last couple of years. Um, partly because it was a pragmatic thing to do. The other thing I was thinking is that people are always always talking shit about how uncool it is to do that kind of thing and how how you know you've got to put a microphone in front of like a five thousand dollar amp in a nice room to record a guitar sound and and I kind of thought that a lot of the music I enjoy and that sort of I guess influences what I try to do in this band didn't take that approach I guess so th- so I guess this was I, I thought in essence doing a doing a digital sort of using digital tech like that was maybe similar to using like a, a shitty four track in the early nineties was, you know, like, like, so that, that was kind of, I guess the motivation there. It also meant that I could record guitar tracks at 4am in the end room of my house, which was, which was good. Um, in terms of other recording, I think we recorded the vocals in the place where we rehearsed just a, a shitty little room late at night, as well. late at night, you know, and um, again, that, you know, I guess just trying to be pragmatic was, was the ultimate goal with it. Mm. Once, once I got, once I got everything sort of in the computer, um, Finch, as I mentioned, or Elliot, um, Finch to his friends is, um, <laughs> is, uh, he has, he has like a lot of experience with audio. So I then handed the audio over to him and he, um, mixed the record and, um, sort of brought it up to, to scratch to what it is and, and what's been released. So um, it was a great learning experience. I learned a lot from doing that. Um, it's something that I'm looking forward to doing again. And I think that maintaining like as much of a, a DIY attitude or like being mm. able to control as much yeah, of that process as you can as, as sort of like for your own band. And I, I think that it's absolutely the way to go. And I'd be yeah. very surprised if big flashy commercial studios are still a going concern in the very near future, you yeah. know, like, cause it's, it's so achievable now for, for, average people with average money to produce records. Yeah, so, yeah. it's good. I think it's not – it's really sick spending a ton of money on, on an awesome record. That's, it, that, that's undoubtable. Like you're going to have 
a really, really awesome sounding record. But um, taking on something like I think Max certainly did and in, in quite an inspiring fashion and being able to do something that's really fun that involves you from start to finish, that kind of familiarity experience is something that I think we haven't certainly haven't shied away from um, and probably accounts for some of the uh, development of the band as well going through that um just listening to so many mixes of your own music that you've you know <laughs> yeah. that, that's gone from you know your head to room to, to to another bedroom to you know digital file to headphones and just repetition repetition and being able to come out the other end of that and be like yeah you know it's even more fun to play it live <laughs> like yeah. Um, yeah, so much the, the, the other thing with like you know there was if there's a way that you can do do it yourself and do it sick it's it to me, that is an awesome thing to do and something that's that that will always attract me back to and continue to drain my money and time <laughs> in music. <laughs> I think if there's if I'd add one thing to to what Max and Rowan have said, is that though though the band recorded literature of piss, which is to say that Elliot recorded literature of piss, we recorded the demo in a studio. So we we're having to pay for studio time and, and I think we recorded it over I mean, I'm guessing now, but I think we booked three days and did the whole thing. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, one of the really nice things that we were able to do with an offer was that, you know, I think, you know, we, we, we must have tracked bass in like May, and I think we tracked vocals around this time last year, which means that it, it's something like a seven-month, you know, or sorry, a six-month process. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the advantages of doing it this way and doing it DIY was that we could record it on our own terms as well not on the kind of timelines and restrictions of studios or anything like that. And that gave us a lot more time to think about the kind of textures that we wanted to, to overlay on the songs mm-hmm. the, and, and, and a lot more kind of time to think about the details and intricacies of the music uh, that I think made it, a, you know, not only a much more enjoyable process to write and, and, and produce, but also I think has made it a much better record because we were able to take so much time with it. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Yeah, mm-hmm. sure. So one thing that kind of interests me and I always like noticing sort of like, like not, it's not like you're suddenly a, a jazz fusion band or anything, but like there are small changes that kind of show <laughs> development and stuff like that. Um, one section that really interests me, there was, there was a vocal style on Literature Piss, I think it was the song Section 3. There was kind of a more of a wail and I don't think it was present on the rest of the that album. But I'm pretty sure it was used more widely throughout in Awful. Talk a little bit about why you decided to broaden that kind of stylistic inclusion. Um, I think I, I perhaps you're referring to. Um uh, I, like you, the vocals that are coming through more and in Awful Salvation that are on uh, the Literature of Piss song, Section 3. Um, is that is that is that the, the same? Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry if I'm, yeah. it's hard, hard to get across, like, a particular section of a song I, I remember. Um, but it's like there's, like, a companion sort of set of vocals in that mm. Section 3 yeah, song. Yeah, okay. And yes, then, it, okay. Then, then it's sort of more broadly throughout the entire In Awful album. Yes, yeah, definitely. Okay, okay. That's, that's, yeah, that, that's, that's Dave. Dave. That's yeah. all Dave. Yeah, I'm, I mean, so part of it is just that that's how it comes out when I shout. Um, <laughs> so, you know, you're like, which, which is, you know, you know um, 
there's there's not clearly a sort of more practical, more kind of conscious explanation than that. So I think I think that it's partially related to our answer to the previous question, which is that when we had a lot more time to record in awful, we were able to to think about in a lot more detail how we wanted to do the vocals. Um, and one of the one of the benefits of that was that we were able to share the share the vocal duties, I suppose, between the three of us. Mm, there were resources yet to be exploited. Yeah, yeah. Abs- absolutely. That, that we were sort of aware going into recording that album that all that you know Max had done most of the vocals on Literature of Piss with me and Rowan doing little bits, um, but that we were aware that there were a lot of vocal resources in the band that we could use to greater effect. And the other advantage was that with the with the recording process that we went through for Inoffal, we had the time and the ability to look at and explore those vocal options as much as we could. And so I think one, well, yeah, that, that's the sort of basic reason is that we wanted to share that a lot more. We wanted to explore what we could do with our vocals a lot more on the, on the second record. Um, and we had the opportunity to do so because we were just recording in our rehearsal space at night was how it came about. Mm, no, that's really cool. I'm a big fan of those that style of vocals. I'm like, I like the fact that it was sort of included more broadly throughout the album. Another sort of like <laughs> kind of question, like about a particular section of song that I hope I can kind of communicate is in um, Sub- Subterranean Vestiges Dragged Forth. Like the end of it is like a noise section that carries over into the urinary, urinary chalice held aloft, and it kind of. I don't know that like the songs don't clearly end and start. There's no like really precise delineation. It kind of the songs bleed into each other. Talk a little bit about that aspect of those two songs. Okay, so I don't think I don't think that was a consciously planned thing in the outset. So that that noise section throughout throughout the whole record, there's three separate noise sections that on the record, like there's bits and pieces of electronics throughout the record, but there's three sort of discrete noise sections. Now that, that middle one was one that I worked pretty much exclusively with Dave on. We kind of tried to divide up the noise sections into sort of a different member sort of directing it, I guess. And I just know that those, those two songs when we started, and again, this is what Dave was talking about with the time that we had to produce the record these things kind of naturally sort of happened over a, a matter of months. I, I, was, I was sort of just thinking just then about the, the writing of that noise section between those two songs, I think would have taken, taken place over quite a substantial amount of time. But um, I guess we kind of came up with that, that noise section as sort of one cohesive piece that then sort of slotted in very neatly, I guess, with the end of the end of one song and the start of another and um, and I guess splitting it down the middle was just kind of an effort to sort of um, demarcate and put those kind of like what I see as the two different sections of that noise section kind of where they belong in terms of being an outro to one song and an intro to another. But it, the the idea of it being seamless and kind of being a very sort of gradual transition, that, that was definitely um, intentional. Um, but I guess and I think this is probably the case with a lot of the like noise and and electronic stuff is that it's very rarely like a process of planning or, or of concept or anything like that. For me, it's very much a kind of a, a gradual process of kind of just working on sounds over and over again. And I think electronics are generally like this anyway, but, but the idea of kind of, um, of, uh, 
ideas kind of revealing themselves as you go through the process of compiling something as sort of abstract as that compared mm. to something like a traditional song or something something like that. So, um, yeah, so that, that's probably a long answer to it was um, <laughs> unintentional in many yeah. ways, but it, yeah. but it worked out. I guess out there's a couple of ways you could answer it.
sort of diverged a little bit more into like the some of the and other aspects of the album um themes of the album um I'm a big fan of lyrics, but I'm not a big fan of listening to lyrics, <laughs> if that makes any sense. Um, yeah, yeah. Talk, talk a little bit about the themes of the album. Is there, are there particular things that are uh, kind of come up throughout the album? Is there particular things that you were sort of focusing on bringing to, to that aspect of the record? Um, yeah, I, th- I think that that's a, that's a good question. Um to, to some extent, it's, I mean, it's a different question to answer. I know that we had a bunch of discussions before we wrote the lyrics for the record um, about how they, how they would turn out. But I also think, I mean, in terms of the kind of practicalities of thinking about what would go into the lyrics or anything like that, I mean, we all wrote bits and pieces. I mean, very similarly to the ways in which the, the songs were written themselves, I think we all wrote little bits and pieces together at home and then during recording, little like more bits were written and that sort of thing. Um very broadly, we were interested in, I think, exploring, and I think this goes across both records to a degree as well, though more sharply on In Awful. We were interested in exploring, I guess, ideas of the kind of negation of humanity uh, through these various sort of metaphors of procreation and, I guess, expurgation and objection. And so a lot of this kind of operated through this sort of idea of imagining a type of being that uh, reproduces through a sort of expurgation of waste was this kind of, if you know, obviously not a sort of like literal kind of account that we were giving up in the album, but a sort of image or a sort of metaphorical um, trope that we were kind of writing around at mm. least mm. that motivated the various songs as they sort of came out yeah. and so there were sort of you know, vague discussions around that but I think then expressed themselves mm. through the lyric writing in a bunch of those songs mm. yeah I think yeah it's, it's, it's a good question and it, as Dave said I, it's more of a mooring in a way it's a, it's a kind of it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a point of reference for the exploration of whatever that kind of notion can deliver us and the way we can kind of think about it. Like, I mean, there is, it'd be, it'd be, dis, it'd be false to suggest that we didn't give some effort to um, having this all hang together mm, in a way that we all appreciate. Um, there is, there is a kind of effort to it, but it's, it's um, transformation is a product of, um, and it's change over time is a product of, everyone kind of working within a kind of shared framework and, and in that way becomes something quite useful lyrically um, as a kind of enabling sort of constraint, having a kind of something that you can kind of commit to and explore in a format that is quite distinct to songwriting, thinking about our previous discussion about approaching an aspect of the music that becomes, you know, approaching the music instrumentally um, and then approaching music through the integration of the human voice, um, especially into heavy music. You've got so much timbre and, like, you've got so much range that you can explore and, you know, expressions in, and um, this is what is also quite sick about heavy music. But, you know, approaching an aspect of that final product that consists of piecing together thoughts behind a computer to a large extent. I think we all kind yeah. of like work on a shared document and there are emails sent and that sort of stuff and everyone contributes again, but it's a very different mode of, of, of enacting a kind of creative impulse and um, having that enabling kind of constraint is something I wouldn't want to apply 
to the other areas of the band, but it certainly helps with, with lyrics. Mm. Mm. Mm, that's really interesting. Um, where does the album title come from? I think it's actually a it's a it's a, it's a line in one of the songs was the simplest way that it kind of came about. Um, I think more generally it worked as as do I think the song titles because the song titles don't necessarily correspond to the lyrics in any of the in any of the specific songs. It worked as a way of kind of capturing a lot of the themes that we were dealing with. That there was a kind of metaphysics around waste. Um, of, of kind of disgust that we were interested in, mm. and it ca- and this it was a particular line in one of the songs that captured that quite succinctly. That I think we all just agreed worked for it. Um, yeah, I, th- I think that's probably the most straightforward answer. Well, one of the things that kind of interests me about it is that just sort of talking about the song titles, sort of more specifically, is like there's this weird duality of disgust and concepts of uh, the, the concepts of the sacred uh, like that that's a really interesting concept to me because like those two ideas i think in most people's mind they're diametric opposite like the sacred the the the, the spiritual profane. yeah the profane they're they're they're, be, they're pure they're pure they're they're often not of this world so they don't involve the disgust of the human body, just discuss all the things in this world, and it's really interesting to be like bringing that stuff together. Like, how did that idea kind of develop? Was there anything that you were reading or listening to or watching that kind of inspired that? How did it kind of the genesis for that little idea sort of come about? Um. I, I think it's a, it's a quite a complicated question in in the sense that I think a lot of this came about quite organically. Um, you know, I think you know, I th- which is to say that I think it would be hard to kind of to try and track for any of us like direct lineages or anything like that. But what I think was quite relevant to us was that when we were thinking through these images of or like these these ideas of procreation, of negation or objection, that sort of thing, that you know, religious thought is perhaps like the longest historical tradition that deals with these kinds of ideas mm. that, you know, that was an excellent resource for us um, for, for a lot of the kind of language that we were already encountering in the kind of material that we were writing, that when we were, when we were interested in this kind of denial of humanity, that that, and, and the ways in which we were interested in that, there seemed to be a lot of parallels with religious language. Mm. And so that, that seemed like a very natural thing to explore at mm. that time. I think, though, I, I think I also see what you're getting at here, that there's certainly and one of the things that we enjoyed in that sort of process or, or you know, very much kind of affirmed is that there is this kind of juxtaposition or what might seem a juxtaposition, but, but for us sort of came about as a sort of necessity of the way we were combining these ideas was this kind of carnal spirituality was a very interesting sort of idea to explore. Mm. This kind of, these ideas of bodily disgust yes. on a kind of metaphysical level was something that we found very resourceful yes. and we were able to get a lot of work mm. out of mm. um, in terms of our lyric writing. It's a productive, it's a productive kind of framing for um, what we were trying to do. Um, I, I would say that I would mm. completely agree with Dave there. And, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The album titles kind of, 
I would describe as inscrutable. Could you talk a little bit about what that depicts? You mean the song titles? Sorry, oh, sorry I've completely screwed that up. The, uh, the, the album cover. The album yeah. cover. Oh, uh, okay. Yes, okay, right. Um, so that, um, we've, we've long worked with a dear friend of ours, um, JR, on any kind of uh, artwork and stuff. He's a very, very good close friend of ours. And um, within our, the context of our previous discussion, there was further um, considerations made uh, with respect to what, what the kind of art was going to look like. Um, and, you know, we've, we've kind of discussed some of the themes that I think were at issue. And the coming about of that particular artwork uh, went some way, you know, part of the, part of the motivation uh, was was in trying to utilize that same series of images um, in a very confronting uh, way. It purposefully wanted to kind of have uh, a, a quite a visceral, off-putting um, kind of appearance, but it was also, to a large degree, influenced uh, by an encounter I had with some work uh, by the name of an artist, uh, Linda Dement. She's an Australian artist, um, and it was it was really enjoying enjoying her work and the consonance that I felt between what I was seeing in what she was doing uh, and what I was thinking about uh, lyrically and talking about and exploring with these ideas, and I I found that quite inspiring uh, for sure. So that was that was within the kind of neighborhood and that, 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 that very much informed the, the communication I had with JR and the, what we achieved in the end. Um, and beyond that, there wasn't much to, 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 to really play into how it turned out. On this particular album, you decided to put the title, uh, you decided to title the tracks, um, in literature, piss you didn't. What changed since the, the that album? Um, so literature, piss the 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 decision to to use uh, the section symbol and to convey them as sections was in trying to keep with some of the kind of spatial language around the ideas that were explored um, with regard to kind of territoriality and 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 the idea of a kind of uh, history um, of of piss, quite literally, a literature of piss. Uh, the, the 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 idea that there is a kind of uh, historical um, cultural record through piss that is a kind of perceptual reality for for uh, in the way that a kind of text is for us, and a kind of an exploration of the very conceited idea that 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 um that history and 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 these sorts of things kind of matter provided there in a particular form just seemed very limiting. And so th- that was the kind of idea behind that. So the section titles pertain to um, the, the quite distinct distribution of this history and literature that, that, that through Pierce, um, you know, section in the kind of geographical sense or section is in terms of a, 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 an apportioning of, of land was, was the intention behind section. I think in terms of the decision to use song titles on the new record, um, I, I, I think in, in, in some ways it's a very similar sort of situation, which is to say that the decision to use section titles 
on literature of piss was in relation to some of the themes that were being explored in this record on that record the decision to use song titles on this record was because that they also related in some way to the themes that the record drew out um they also offered us i suppose with within awful an opportunity to in some ways summarize or or present in short the the broad kind of theme we were dealing with without necessarily detailing the explicit ways in which we were expressing that through the lyrics or anything like that. But they offered us a means by which we might um, invite people who were listening to the record into some of the ideas yeah. without necessarily making, putting all of that on the table, so to speak. The album's released on cassette, uh, speaking of In Awful. Um, wh- why'd you have it released on cassette? Like, what's the appeal of that format? Uh, I like cassettes. Yeah, we all we all, we all definitely collect, enjoy we all that. collect cassettes. Yeah. Um, they're cheap. They're cheap to make. They are awesome to have and to give. Um, yeah, they, I mean they're cheap to sell. Like I think it's. I mean I think the main reason that a lot of that we all got into to collecting cassettes was that they're, they're a really cheap thing to buy. Mm. Like I like the idea that you know people can come to our shows and pick up a cassette for for quite cheap. I think that that's a really good thing. I think we also all have a preference towards analog mediums in general. Yeah. Um, not, I, not out of any, like, sonic... No, like, no. <laughs> let, let, let's not be under any illusions here. Like, it, there, there, there's no kind of auditory gain to be made. However, I think it's more tactile, and that's probably what Dave's getting at. Yeah. Like, there's, there's a kind of materiality to a tape which is sick in an age of digital music that I think is mm. very appealing. Mm. I think, you know... For five dollars, you can get an artifact that contains a download code, so you can listen to it on your computer. Yeah. But you also get you also get an object that someone's given some thought to um, and wants you to look at, wants you to touch, wants you to have, wants you to, to keep on your shelf. And and that's sick. And CDs are also sick in that regard. But um, uh, you know, and I think that that probably accounts for a lot of the kind of interest in the, you know, the lasting interest, the durability of vinyl as a kind of medium as well. I think like there is in some way uh, a, a wantingness to, to have something cool that you can put on your shelf. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's simple, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I do think they, the, like the physicality, I think was a very big thing. I think I should note with that as well, that both of the records have just been released on, on vinyl as well in the last oh, week. Yeah. Um, so both of them have been put out on cassette and on vinyl as well. So, I mean, we get to have a digital release, I suppose, or a CD release, that is. Mm. Mm, it's very interesting. Well, it's, uh, sort of what we have in society is it's kind of a tangent here, but we sort of have, like, two sets of people kind of emerging, ones which are content with the emerging digital age and others which uh, sort of want to ha- hold on to what was once material yeah um uh i mean i mean i speaking for myself i don't see those two things as being as separate as some people talk about them mm. you know and i and i wonder sometimes how much of the sort of analog versus digital you know spotify's bad records are good kind of thing is is just sort of like you know, scene shit talk sort of stuff. But like, but I, I guess, like I could say personally, you know, I, I sort of 
listen to a lot of digital music. That's that's something I listen to a lot of. I think it's amazing that like while you're walking around, you can play at your phone, you can listen to you know numerous new records you've never heard before instantly. I think that's an amazing thing, and I think underground music's benefited very much from Absolutely. that distribution. And yeah, and I think that we should. I think that it should be embraced that you have. I mean, obviously, you have subscription services and stuff now, but the idea of having freely distributed music available to people, yeah. I think, is something that should be should be encouraged. getting shit in the mail. And that's and that's and that's the other thing as well. So it's like, and I and I also, you know, love the idea of yeah, getting records in the mail, still getting something that I know mm. that somebody sent me. Um, like, I don't think that I think those things are always talked about. How like you can only have one or the other, and I don't know why they can't be um, mm. sort of mutually supportive of one another. Yeah. The extent to which you can kind of read these things into like, you know, social categories or classes, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not so sure about, but, you know, to the question of like analog mediums in a thoroughly digital environment, um, it carries with it the risk of all sorts of like fetishizations and, 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 and sort of weird things that kind of strange nostalgia that's that's you know ultimately quite toxic but um it's it's i think beyond the level of just like again getting sick shit in the mail and having something to touch and look over and get excited about with your friends is um an enjoyable thing and has been for a long time and you know like dave actively participates in like distributing tapes it's and it's it's become a kind of a social network in a weird yeah. way i mean yeah uh, we, we borrow we, a digital metaphor but yeah. like I mean, yeah, we we trade tapes with other bands, we're friends with mm-hmm. them, that sort of mm-hmm. thing. So I mean, yeah, yeah, there is a really nice social aspect to it. I think the other thing I would say that I think is relevant to us in our interest in in releasing on physical formats, in particular, you know, regardless of which formats that is, is that I mean, you asked you asked us about the artwork previously, is that you know whether whether cassette, CD, or vinyl, um, those mediums have as opposed to digital, have given us an opportunity to explore artwork and explore a kind of presentation of the band. More fun things to do. Exactly, in in a way that a digital release doesn't necessarily. So I think Mm -hmm. we, you know, as as much as I'm I'm very happy that we have a band camp, I'm very happy, you know, like I have have no problem with digital music, we all use it, Um, but there's definitely a lot of stuff to do with the kind of physicality of releases that I think we're all all very fond of. For sure, yeah. yeah. Definitely. Very, very good points. Um, I want to ask you a couple of last questions about yourselves. Um, but firstly, I've—I don't think I've interviewed a, another band from Canberra thus far. What's <laughs> what's the scene like in Canberra for like metal heavy music? Uh, metal heavy music. Um, Canberra is a small place, um, and. There haven't really been kind of distinct, truly, truly kind of distinct atomized kind of scenes in a way. I'm sure this this experience will will ring true with a lot of other people that have been involved in um, pursuing music. Especially in Australia. Especially in Australia. Mm -hmm. Um, There is a degree of pollination and cross-pollination between communities of people and and interests and, and, and that sort of stuff. Canberra's size does mean that, like, the, you know, consistent gigging, consistent audiences um and generating you know a fan a group of people that are into your music um such that you can you know perform regularly is probably kind of out of the equation and like probably not 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 such a good idea either (laughs) like yeah yeah i think and you know there's 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 something about canberra's isolation that makes people's 
motivations to do music quite interesting. Mm. Um, it's close to the big cities, but not close enough to have itself caught up with various kinds of um, interests. It just it develops in a discreet way, and there is a t- an ex- outstanding pedigree to Canberra heavy bands. Um, mm. You know, it goes back a long time, and, and mm. there's those 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 people in those bands are kind of still around. Um, <laughs> so you kind of see them, and and it, it, it's cool in a way to to have that resource that is so local. Um, and yeah, I mean, Canberra is an interesting place. Great for making music, I would say. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think it's interesting. I think that. Obviously, it would be nice in in a, in a whole lot of ways to say that there was a particularly strong scene here that enabled us to play live regularly or sort of pull crowds regularly or anything like that, which isn't the case. Um, but I think that there's also a significant benefit to the fact that there isn't really a scene in Canberra, so to speak, for heavy music. Mm-hmm. And I think Rowan's touched on both of these ideas, and one of them is the fact that there's a high degree of cross-pollination, which is to say that when we do play in Canberra, you generally play on mixed bills, which I really like, um, which I, you know, I think there's a huge amount of benefit to that. I think that the other thing is that there's a lot of benefits that accrue to a band from the kind of introversion that's required mm. of existing in a place like Canberra. Yeah. That because we don't play live regularly or, or anything like that, we just spend a lot of time in in small rooms with one another, <laughs> yeah. writing music that isn't heard by other people. Yeah. Um, and one of the benefits of that is that, to, to some degree, you don't get the kind of homogenization that might happen in a much denser scene where you have a lot of bands that are all, you know, working in a similar genre, playing live together regularly, mm. hanging out regularly. I think there's some there's there's a degree of benefit to the sort of introversion that comes with that. I mean, probably like the best band from the last sort of fifteen years from Canberra that plays heavy music is probably Sacrifix, and only half of them were from Canberra, and they never played live. So, yeah. which is to say that there's a sort of culture of, you know, very good bands that don't do a lot of public stuff or engage mm. in something that you might say is a scene in Canberra. Mm. 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 Definitely, like, yeah. It's definitely uh, a place in which you can kind of pursue your interests in a way, in a, in, in a very uh, productive environment. Mm. Um, I think there's much to be said for the very small-minded of, small, small kind of tight-knit community aspect of it. And I realise that that's a bit, of, a bit of a kind of trope in a way, but it is cool knowing everyone who's doing sick shit and, <laughs> like, that, that, that's mad um, and that, that, that benefits you and it benefits all sorts of further cross-pollinations and collaborations that will eventuate as a result. I mean, yeah, like, I guess growing up in Canberra, I always felt like there was kind of it was was sort of probably not not anymore, but it was sort of a heavy metal town, I guess, when I was growing up. Like as, a, as a teenager, yeah. yeah, metal for the brain was just down the road from where I grew up in Canberra. So, I mean, I saw some pretty ridiculous, you know, shit when I was you know fourteen, fifteen years old, which is, I guess, probably maybe taken for granted maybe in places like Sydney and Melbourne and, and Brisbane stuff like that, where that stuff happens all the time, maybe, but. It was it was kind of this weird juxtaposition of sort of being in this small town where it seemed like nothing was going on, and then you know one time a year there'd be this giant metal festival where all these crazy bands would come through. So so that and and like Dave mentioned with mixed bills and things like that, I mean growing up for me it was kind of like extreme metal bands and like hardcore bands and 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 sort of I guess general like underground sort of music I guess was kind of not not entirely separate in the way yeah, that it could be absolutely. it could be distinct in 
in bigger cities like that would that would never happen in a place like Melbourne or Sydney or um, I, I think that that's and I think that informed my sort of approach to music very mm. very strongly growing mm, up here like definitely. a product of that environment for sure. Yeah. Canberra's yeah. weirdness is affirmed by us. Like I think, <laughs> I, think that's, I think that's the main thing is like you know like what other people denigrate and look down on if there is such a is if there is such a thing as Canberra loathing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like Canberra shit talking. Uh, you know, I think that we're fully ready to affirm and do and reap the benefits of that kind of totally weird, cool context that we've all got and the histories we've we've had here and the people we've met and the bands we've played in and so on. Mm. When did you guys start listening to heavy music? Man, I think we all probably did when we were teenagers. Yeah. Yeah. Just high school. Yeah. Yeah. Angry and shit. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, when do you guys start playing your respective instruments? I think same goes, probably about the like, yeah. same time. Start of high school, yeah. being in a band was the coolest thing you could do. Yeah. And like still, yeah. I, you know, my fatal flaw is still thinking that that's the case. But <laughs> <laughs> I think I think like getting into that kind of music and getting an instrument to me were like very, it was a very short period of time where those both things, the, both of those things sort of happened. Yeah. I think. Yeah, and as soon as, soon as yeah. I heard that kind of stuff, like I immediately wanted to try it. and do it. Yeah, and I guess still trying. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what about vocals? I know you guys all do vocals, uh, or at least you guys all do vocals of this particular band. When do you guys start? Uh, I know having got vocals, starting to sort of take it, I know seriously to get something that you could put on a, a record. I'm probably like pretty sporadically. Um, like I'm not sure if we've ever treated it as the sort of thing that there was a kind of threshold for us as vocalists where it kind of hit a point where we thought, you, you know, we, we'd, we'd attain some kind of level that it was like record worthy or something like that. I think we've all like experimented with it probably through the same amount of time period as we've been playing music. I think like, general. yeah, there are, there aren't very many places where you can just yell. Mm. So mm, <laughs> yeah. that is a big issue. You know, yeah, so, sure you know, you don't, it's not something, at least my circumstance, Max Max is a natural. It comes natural to Max. <laughs> but, like, you know, for us mortals, there's there's a lot to overcome. Like, you know, your throat hurts. It's yeah, you know, like, like physicality. It's like, yeah, it's, you know, you're, you're, you're giving a kind of performance in a way. You're hoping for a certain result, and it's the human voice is an instrument. Like, it's not, mm. it's not something you can just kind of switch on, I want this kind of sound, like... It requires work in a way, and whatever you know gets stumbled across in the process that's worth keeping is is really is really sick. But practically speaking, quite literally, it'd be for the uh, four or five hours we we see each other during the week in band practice, <laughs> like, yeah, be like yeah, yeah. how that skill is honed. Um, yeah, mm, for sure, definitely not. I'm definitely not doing it at home. <laughs> yeah, that's no good. Nobody wants that. Last question. I know it can be a little bit of a difficult one, but do you have any favourite bands or albums? Uh -huh. Yeah, that's yeah, that's, a, that's it's, brutal. It's yeah. that's a tricky one. Um, <laughs> tricky one. I what mean, mode I, am I in? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I think who are you talking to? <laughs> I th yeah, I think I think it's. I mean, the, the kind of question is difficult in itself, in the sense that, like, I. I, I think I would find it hard to imagine a kind of hierarchy of records in, you know, in, a, in a kind of ranking. I mean, there's stuff I listen to more than other stuff. Um, I, I think that goes for, for all of us to a degree. I think all of us listen to a lot of Australian black and death metal in particular. Mm -hmm. um, 
but man, yeah, like thinking about like a ranking or something. Mm. I don't, I've got, I would have no idea. Mm. Yeah, I, it's tricky. It's a tricky one. I mean, there's there's a kind of there's a neighborhood of bands mm. that I like. A uh, ranking would be hard, but you know, there's there's definitely a strong uh, uh, interest in what's going on here in our backyard and and checking out and enjoying Australian bands. And again, I think this this in some way. Your question also speaks to a topic we discussed earlier around the uh, the tape kind of stuff too, because a lot of what we're all listening to is determined by what tapes Dave's got. Like, <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, like you know, like yeah, I'm always checking stuff out online for sure, for sure. Always listening. Like, and you know, again, you, you, the exposure is immense to to new music, um, but you know, con- consuming a record, um, having it leave an impression on you and wanting to kind of think about it and talk about it more in the way that a good book or a good movie does. It prompts you to ask more questions and invite other people to reflect on it with you. Um, that happens when Dave gets sick, when Dave gets sick tape. So um, <laughs> when they're, Dave's they're tape probably box my comes in, that's, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. a good day. Yeah, uh, yeah. sure. Yeah. I, I find it just impossible like Dave to sort of make a hierarchy of any of that. Yeah. Like I'm just, I'm, you know, just obsessed by the shit and just, mm. you know. Yeah, I think yeah. that this, this question also goes to, to the question about influences to a degree, which is to say that I think all of us listen to, you know, obviously our, our tastes incline towards particular forms of extreme music, like whether that's like black and death metal or, you know, power electronics or anything else like that. But I think all of us listen to a sufficiently widespread of music mm. that, you know, it's it, you know, it's almost hard to compare across genres or something like that. That there's mm. that there's sufficient it's diversity. Unfair. Yeah. That, if, there, if, there, if it was like sickest black metal release from these two years or something, I could probably get some precision. Or maybe, yeah. I don't know. Like, <laughs> even then, I probably even then it's probably gonna take a couple like, of you know, hours. Sickest, yeah. sickest fucking Scrams release from these years. You know, like ooh. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah.
Salvific Putridity Bestowed, and the track that we heard in the middle of the interview was The Urinary Chalice Held Aloft. Thanks again to Plowshare for talking to me. It can be a little bit difficult to have an interview with two or more people. I've had one with Moondwell, and now I've had another one with Plowshare. And it presents challenges, but also opportunities. So the challenges are that... Yeah, I'm talking to two people which I'm not in visual contact with, which makes it kind of difficult to spatially. I know that's weird when we're talking about audio, but it, there is a spatial dynamic to conversations, and it kind of it's very difficult when it's a one-way sort of channel between you, the microphone, and the internet um, to sort of kind of direct questions or get a feel for where people are, as well as sort of difficult to talk to people when you can't assign names to their faces because um, I'm not doing video chat. Also, it presents real opportunity, as I think you heard during that interview, was the ability of the different participants of the band to play off against each other. So one person puts in their perspective, and then another person adds to that, or they might even have a counterpoint. They might argue against it. Um, and it, it can be it's really flesh out a band far more than just one member can often do it, because often they bring a sort of narrow perspective, or narrow just because that's how we are as people generally. So I, I really enjoyed that, as, as much as the challenge it sort of can present, trying to get a, a range it in from an audio perspective before i go i want to make a recommendation for an album you should check out this week sargeist they are a finnish band german name interestingly enough released an album earlier this month unbound really really cool stuff it's like black metal kind of goes back to what i was talking about in i think it might have been the first episode maybe it was the second, about my perspectives on death metal versus black metal, that I find there's often a lot more going on in black metal. And I think this, to a certain extent, presents my point for me. Like, it's it's nothing progressive, it's nothing experimental, there's no real folk stuff, there's no ambient, there's no atmospheric stuff, but there's a little bit more going on in it. And I think it kind of shows at least what the modern black metal scene can really do. You have a band who's playing a sort of standard version of black metal, but with a slight bit of going outside the box, they can do some really, really cool stuff. And that that was something I really experienced. So I've never listened to this band before, but they've been around for a while. The One of the projects of Shatteraug, um, a pretty prolific Finn. The band has four new members all joined in 2016, and I don't know whether the previous releases of the band were this outstanding, or maybe it's just them joining that's really pushed the levels up, but it's a really, really good record, and I encourage you to check it out, especially if you're a fan of black metal. I think it's sort of ticks all the kind of boxes but still manages to be really varied which you may not necessarily want in your black metal but i don't think it hurts i definitely don't think it hurts um i interviewed bear the mammoth earlier tonight as of recording and releasing this episode and that's going to be out later this week so definitely check that out thanks for joining me um if you've got any questions comments if you're in a band and you want to ask me for an interview send me an email australianhunger at gmail.com you can hit me up on twitter srhgbg or find australian hunger on all the different social media channels i actually had a really interesting experience this week where someone requested an interview cool i encourage people to do that no guarantees of interviews but if you've got some good stuff i'm definitely interested in interviewing you the issue with this particular individual was he wasn't for like a heavy band or a metal band or a post-rock band or any of the kind of genres that i'm particularly interested in interviewing he was a rapper which you know more power to him but not necessarily that interested unless you're doing some really really cool stuff 
there's some rappers out there who I would consider interviewing, but there ain't many, and they're going to kind of be more, more up my alley. The kind of rappers who they rap, but they're clearly influenced by some of the music that I listen to. So, but anyway, I'm sort of I'm, I'm open to different things depending on what it is. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you later this week.